0: The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, you happy warrior. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You heroic men going to work early every morning, regardless of whether you feel like it, disciplining yourself and improving yourself watching over your spouse and children if you have them, and taking care of business, generating cash flow, and doing what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You who ignore your heart's desire to indulge the body's seductive whisper, instead, you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against the hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers have built. Those barbarians know that. That even after they destroy the civilization you built, and as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked and burned and looted ruins, they will still live better than anything they could ever have built themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you beautiful and brave women resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow. You gorgeous and courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, family, inspiring your man to greatness, nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical maturity, Yes, you men and women, you happy warriors who do all this and have done all this and do so much more, you are the natural audience of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. You are the audience I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom out of the Bible, well, that is another day of privilege for me because you are not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life. You have your hand firmly on the steering wheel of your life. As William Ernest Henley's great poem, Invictus, ends, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Because you are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. It is indeed my honor to serve you all and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Yes, that's right. This is the only show in the entire digital universe that reveals how the world really works. This is the only show in the world which offers you calisthenics for the contemplative. And how about strenuous stretching for the soul? I'm going to stand beside you as you attempt speculative somersaults of the spirit. Yes, this is how the world really works. A sad fact. Truths are verified by time. It's sad because of limited human lifespan. So intergenerational contact, parents to children, grandparents to grandchildren, it's essential. Children who are not introduced to the culture of their parents, families, and society, ends up, they all end up as tragic orphans of time. Under these sad circumstances, each child becomes an adult excruciatingly isolated, from all that went before disconnected from his history disconnected from all real knowledge disconnected from a timeless vision that has sustained his people for generations above all disconnected from the slowly accumulated wisdom of the ages. That is the dangerous and tragic fate of a frighteningly large proportion of today's teenagers in many countries orphans of time. Thus, they become terrifyingly vulnerable to the lies, distortions, and propaganda promulgated by their elders for their own reasons. For instance, culturally connected young people who could add the life experience of their parents and their grandparents to their own far shorter set of life knowledge, well, they would never fall prey to the nonsensical notion that Say, skin color is destiny," or the equally puerile proposition that you can change your gender. Young people who get how the world really works would know that the deal offering you f- to offering you equality imposed by tyranny is not nearly as valuable as freedom with equ- inequality they would burst out into hysterical laughter at any college professor who tried to teach them that equality is the ultimate value or that the biggest threat facing America at the moment is inequality. Time tells the truth. Imagine, if you would, some self-anointed expert pointing to the waning moon in the nighttime sky, teaching that Once the moon finally shrank to a tiny sliver of a crescent, it would then vanish forever. Now, for two weeks, his students might believe him, but no sooner than they'd get accustomed to the dark skies, then the new moon would appear as a tiny sliver and grow to its full size disc brilliance in a timeless, repetitive cycle of growing moon and shrinking moon. Two weeks isn't long to wait for a false theory to be debunked, but other equally spurious ideas can take far longer to debunk, and if you have no veneration for knowledge of the past, you are condemned to make some of the most important decisions in your life on the basis of fake ideas and false assertions. It was once believed that removing blood from a sick person cured him, They even used repugnant insects called leeches. I'm not sure they're insects, maybe they're animals. Uh, But I mean, they're repugnant, they are, whatever they are. And they performed a procedure called cupping, where they used hot glasses to draw blood out of a a piece of a little part of your skin where a cut was cut. Um, But it didn't last for long. With the passage of a little time, it became obvious that this medical strategy achieves nothing at all. It was once believed that uranium radiation was healthy, but again within one generation or less it became blindingly obvious that what was previously believed to be true was in fact just plain wrong. Passage of time helps. Problem is that we have to live our lives in a time span that is often shorter than the time necessary to reveal many beliefs as false. For many years, American teachers insisted on teaching children to read by the whole language approach. Up till then, parents always taught their kids to read phonetically. K-A-T spells cat. Now, I am somewhat prepared to struggle through the word cat-a-log. Yeah, a catalog. The teaching establishment wanted to dis- distinguish what they saw as their high, high level of credentialed professional expertise from what parents have done for generations, namely taught their children to read. And if even an untrained, uneducated, uncredentialed mum can teach her child to read, which they can, why do we need such highly paid teachers? Highly paid teachers, you might ask. Says who? Well, actually, the marketplace. No shortage of people eager to become teachers. And so, as a result, in came whole language reading, which didn't work, of course. Anyone open to the wisdom of the ages would have known that it was a doomed experiment. And when, after some years had passed, they abandoned the whole language approach to early childhood education, everybody was relieved, except, of course, the children and their families who were the casualties of that cruel and callous experiment. To this day, when I meet an adult with serious reading difficulties, a man or a woman who doesn't enjoy reading, doesn't know do more of it than absolutely necessary, someone who experienced challenges during his education, I sadly guess, hey, you attended elementary school probably in California during the 70s and 80s, right? So again, it was time passing that proved that whole language teaching was a false and damaging way of teaching children to read. Unfortunately, just too much time to elapse to have been helped to those whose entire lives were impacted by this needless and destructive experiment, uh, changing how people had always learned to read, and those people would happily do it again today. In almost every area, socialism, leftism, secular fundamentalism, progressivism, whatever, identifies itself by ignoring and mocking and ultimately rejecting all wisdom of the past. It is only in a left-wing environment that young is a positive adjective, as in a new young face in the U.S. Congress. In other cultures, less enthralled by progressivism, leadership comes from the elders. Even the word senator is related to the word senile and senicide, also the word senior. The idea is that senators would be older and wiser, people who have gathered the wisdom of the ages. <laughs> Good luck there. There was a perfectly sensible and normal preference for older leaders, more likely to have gained some knowledge and real-world experience, less likely to be susceptible to the foolishness we find in so many politicians, particularly the younger, ambition may be a little less vast. Bottom line, the older you are, the more you've seen, and the more wrong turns you've seen debunked. It's for this reason only that the Bible in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32, says, "'You shall rise before the aged and show deference to the old. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord.'" It's not claiming that older folks are brainier and never make mistakes and they're smart and wise. Some older folks are, and some conspicuously are not. No, it's just telling us that regardless of anything else, the older a person is, the more opportunity is had to see folly get its due reward. The Bible accords an old person this honor and respect only because of the passage of time. It's really useful. I think that we've all become so obsessed with young and pretty people, so intoxicated by the newest and latest technology, that we utterly utterly ignore some of the wisdom of the ages. You want to do something really interesting, here's an idea. Take your best friend, take your spouse, take your children, go find an old person to talk to. Initially, you'll have to persuade them that you really are interested. They've had years getting used to being made to feel useless. I think you'll unexpectedly enjoy a few of these kinds of encounters. Passage of time helps learn the truth and become wiser. Look, here's the bottom line. If we could all live for a thousand years, well, by the time we reached middle age, we'd start becoming pretty smart and fairly wise. I'm telling you all this to try and convey to you the value of ancient Jewish wisdom. Ancient Jewish wisdom is a way of learning the gathered wisdom of the ages without having to live for a thousand years. And that is why it is that I'd recommend that when you have a moment, go to my website and take a look at something I call scrolling through scripture. It's really the most profound thing that I've done. It's the most significant resource that I've made available. When I say profound and significant, that is because it's what I started doing when I began a synagogue in Southern California in the late 1970s. It was basically, we started in somebody's living room in just the way that many synagogues and churches are planted from nothing. And it grew into a large, vibrant, dramatic, well-known congregation um, who at different times included extremely well-known people uh, within its membership. Um, I hesitate to include the name Barbara Streisand, whose son had his bar mitzvah in my synagogue. Um, But yes, she was involved for a period of time and, um, and many other people were. What caused Their involvement, what stimulated them, what brought about substantial change in their lives, what brought them to review how they viewed marriage, family, politics, uh, finance, business, money. It was nothing but a series of weekly classes where we went through scripture, starting with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and going through the text. Go showing it in the Hebrew original in spite of the fact that nobody actually then was able to read the Hebrew language. It only came later that we taught that as well. But I realized that it was possible even for people who don't read Hebrew at all, provided they are guided correctly to see the ancient Jewish wisdom embedded within the letters and the words of the Lord's language. And I realized that this needed to be made available for a wider audience, and that the same that it accomplished in the lives of hundreds of young Jews in Southern California in the 70s and 80s, um, it was able to do for all people in all times. And hence, we've started a program, a learning program, a program that brings you ancient Jewish wisdom, not told to you, but in a way you can see yourself jumping right off the pages of the chapters and verses. So whether or not you are a Bible enthusiast, whether or not you know any Hebrew, uh, whether or not you even know that your life really does need a reset, that you have a way here of truly making tomorrow the first day of an entirely new part of what you're going to achieve and what you're going to accomplish as you move towards a a deep and meaningful happiness, understanding how to have your hand on the steering wheel of your life. It's called scrolling through scripture, and we've deliberately um, kept it at a lesson a week, because we don't want you to go racing through it. We want you to take a lesson, enjoy it, savor it, watch it more than once at your own time and at your own pace. And then whenever you're ready, move on to lesson two, as long as it's more than a week that you've devoted to it. And it's called scrolling through scripture, as I've said, and you can find it at rabbidaniellappin.com. So head over there and uh, take a look at it at rabbidaniellappin.com. Look at scrolling through scripture and join me on truly one of the most exciting journeys I'm currently taking that uh, I walk along with hundreds of other people who are excited about this program. And I hope you too will be joining us soon. And speaking about how susceptible people can be to untested ideas and to novel notions that have no foundation in truth or in reality, I think sometimes of how easily people can be swayed and are by uh, sweet sayings and popular songs. And uh, there was one popular song in particular that I wanted to bring to your attention? Well, because it came to my attention at the present time. It it played a role, um, in a sense, this piece of music bracketed the four years of the Donald Trump presidency. It was the music to which Donald Trump began his presidency, and it was the music with which he ended it. And I decided for the first time to take another look at the words, and I did. And I think you might find uh, the significance of those words, well, as interesting as I did. So, yes, my friends, I do plan on critiquing the beautiful song, I Did It My Way. It was a song that was written by Paul Anker in 1968, and then made famous, incredibly famous by Frank Sinatra a year later, in 1969. And uh, the song is very evocative. It powerfully resonates, uh, particularly with men. And I felt that in order for me to critique Paul Anker's work, I have to confess something which I absolutely recognize, and that is that the critic is never as good as the creator. I mean, I accept that. The critic is never as good as the creator, and uh, I'm going to remind you of something that was up on the wall of my son's room for all of his adolescent years. And that is a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And here's what he said. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and without shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And how beautiful is that? And so, as you can imagine, uh, it is with considerable trepidation that I now embark on a critique of the Paul Anker song, I, I Did It My Way. Now, why am I going to critique it? I'm going to critique it because I don't believe that we fully appreciate today the extent to which song and music shapes a people's culture. Song and music goes back a very long time. In fact, if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 21, we encounter a guy called Yval often called Jubal, um, whose uh, occupation in life was making musical instruments and teaching people how to play music. And so music was a part of the human cultural experience all the way back. I will tell you that um, every day, uh, Jews who worship, every day in the prayers, they recite uh, the most famous song in the five books of Moses, and this is the song that Moses and all of Israel sang on the banks of the Red Sea after they were rescued from the pursuing Egyptian army, and uh, as they watched their Egyptian tormentors drowning in the raging surf. And uh, that song um, starts off, it's chapter Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. And it starts off, um, and then sang Moses and the Children of Israel. And you go through the song that details the deliverance that they experienced. And I've got to think that my approach to life is considerably sculpted by the fact that I start off every day. (laughs) I'm not going to say singing because uh, out of courtesy to my neighbors, I don't sing but uh, at least reciting this most famous of all songs in the five books of Moses. I also, speaking to my United States listeners, I don't for one moment doubt that America would be a different place today if every school child from grade school started the day with a Pledge of Allegiance and then singing the Star-Spangled Banner, or perhaps America the beautiful. There was a time that that happened, and America used to be a much more of a normal place back in those days. But when I talked to you about the early 1960s being the epochal shift in American culture, one of the huge changes was eliminating those few minutes early in the school day of every American child. It really does make a difference. And so I say to you that the kind of culture we are raising in America today is very much shaped, very much shaped by the songs that people listen to, by the songs children sing, by the music they play. And you know you're going to see many people today walking down the road or getting on and off buses or trains with earpods in their ears, and they're listening to music. And what are they listening to? Well, let's just say that based on my few dives into contemporary music, what they're listening to is even worse than what your uh, what their parents' generation was listening to, the parents' generation were listening to songs like the Beatles singing All You Need Is Love. Now, look, advertising works. You can change people's thinking by means of repeated messages. If that were not true, then the billions of dollars that smart and careful companies spend on advertising would be a complete waste. When a message is repeated, and it is a simple message, and it is repeated again and again, it really does have an impact. And so I do believe that a generation was raised on All You Need Is Love sang the Beatles, and many other copycat bands had similar songs. And as a result of that, I virtually choke. On um, amusement, when I hear politicians who are supposed to be sage and wise and deliberate leaders of society, and I, I hear them making speeches saying, If only we all practice love. <laughs> really? I thought that was the Beatles. Well, it's spread, it's everybody. And uh, does that actually mean anything? If a boy says to a girl, oh, I love you, and she says, oh, I love you also, I love you even more, no, I love you more, until anyone bystanding wants to gag, um, and they think that all they need is love. And there's absolutely no reason why they should not embark on what we all know is an absolutely doomed marriage venture. Songs really do matter. Or how about when um, you might remember John Lennon's song, an entire generation of people were brought up on this, Imagine. And it's got lyrics like, imagine there are no countries. It isn't hard to do. Well, let me tell you, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, right? Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer. But I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine that there are no countries. So I'll tell you an example of somebody who was raised on that song and actually believes it. He's integrated it into his entire worldview. His name is Ezekiel Emmanuel. He is a Jewish doctor. Why do I tell you he's a Jewish doctor? Because I can't really tell you about good things that Jews have done, if I don't also tell you about bad things that Jews have done. And of course, there are attempts to label as a bigoted anti-Semite anybody who suggests that anything bad is ever done by Jews. But of course, this is complete and utter nonsense. And so Ezekiel Emanuel, Uh, did an article in what used to be a prestigious and worthwhile journal called The Scientific American, and this journal uh, did the piece recently on what is the most ethical way to distribute the coronavirus vaccine, and I am uh, preparing this particular podcast in January of 2021. And so I want you to hear how effectively Ezekiel, Doctor Ezekiel Emanuel, who, by the way, was one of the architects of so-called Obama Care, uh, I want you to hear what he thinks is the way to do it. And the the uh, the the I'm, I'm now reading you very specifically from his words. This is why it is important to have an ethical framework for vaccine distribution that supersedes nationalism. Now, this is now back to me talking. Uh, nationalism suggests that if an American company develops a vaccine, then all Americans should be the first to benefit from that vaccine. That would appear to be fairly straightforward. But Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel says, no, it's important to have an ethical framework for vaccine distribution, that supersedes nationalism. You see, nationalism is a bad word because nationalism suggests that there are countries, not John Lennon's view of imagine, but that uh, there really are countries. And so let's go back to Ezekiel Emanuel. This is pretty remarkable stuff. Um, From an ethical standpoint, says Dr. Emanuel, There's not a good reason for absolute partiality where a country covers every one of its citizens before giving any vaccine internationally. Now, back to your rabbi. Really? Why not? I thought that the job and function of the American government is for the benefit of American citizens. That's kind of what the Constitution says, actually. But Ezekiel Emanuel says, no, no, no. Ethics supersedes mere nationalism and um and he says there's a good ethical reason not to have absolute vaccine nationalism and many governments are arguing for fair and equitable distribution of vaccines (laughs) back to your rabbi i bet there are i bet there are many governments the same governments who insisting on increased handouts from the united nations and governments that are insisting on more foreign aid from the United States of America—I bet there are many governments are arguing for fair and equitable distribution of vaccines. You know, I'll, I'll leave you to to uh, boggle your mind over number one: what is fair and equitable distribution of vaccines, and number two: who should decide that. But fortunately, you won't have to boggle your mind very long because Dr. uh, Ezekiel Emanuel is actually going to tell you who should be in charge of deciding what is a fair and equitable distribution of vaccines. And so uh, um, he says, and now he goes on to say, the problem is there's almost no definition of what fair and equitable means, specifically in terms of distribution. Yes, hello. And when your rabbi read those words, uh, oh, good, there's hope. The man recognizes that up till now he's been talking unadulterated bilge water, that we must decide on a fair and equitable way to distribute the vaccines. But how about the country that invented them, right, makes them available for sale in that country? What's so hard to understand about that? But Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel continues in the Scientific American. And now he's talking about himself and uh, some other people. And this is so breathtaking that I strongly recommend that since uh, we are concerned with public health here, your rabbi recommends you take a good deep breath of oxygen right now because you are going to be breathless for a few moments after you hear what Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel writes in The Scientific American. All right, I'm quoting. Being ethicists, public health people and political scientists we thought that we were best suited to try and design such a definition what more do you want than that? I mean, is you know there is no there is no word for this other than the hebrew word chutzpah chutzpah unmeasured impertinence uh, i mean can you believe this this gives you an example of america now moving into a new era of being governed by bureaucrats and introducing a new um, era of public policy shaped by medical mandate. I'll say it again, says Dr. Ezekiel in the early part of his article on the topic, since we're all ethicists and public health people and political scientists, we thought we were best suited to try and design the definition of what would be a fair and equitable way of distributing the vaccine. You won't be shocked to hear that they end up deciding that it must be distributed to all countries and all nations. It should not be the, uh, the consequence of vaccine nationalism. Yes, that evil vaccine nationalism. And so uh, songs are really important and I Did It My Way, is an example of a song that it is truly worthwhile exploring. It's truly worthwhile analyzing. And what I recommend is that you get into the practice of routinely evaluating popular culture features, such as music, In terms of what you know to be the timeless truths and the permanent principles, because songs are seductive, let's, let's acknowledge that songs are really, really seductive. And so with all the caveats of, yes, I am not the creative equal of Paul Anker who wrote I did it my way in 1968, and I'm certainly, I can't sing like Frank Sinatra or anything, anything even remotely approaching it. Um, granting all of that, I do believe there is value in analyzing a song which has shaped so many people. And I'll, I'll give you an example. It's so fascinating that on January the 20th, In the year 2021, President Donald Trump departed the White House with the music playing in the background. And do you know what the music was? I did it my way. And heaven knows. I mean, yes, I see the appropriateness of it. You know, I watched it. I listened to the song playing. I watched the president and his wife walk away. And I thought, my goodness, how... How eloquent that is and how apt and appropriate that is, right? A terrific song. But it goes further than that because, interestingly enough, exactly four years earlier, there was an inaugural ball. President Trump became president on January the 20th in the year 2017. And that night, there were several balls, but the main inaugural ball where uh, President Trump and his wife, Mrs. Trump, danced the official dance of the President and the First Lady, which is a time-honored tradition. Guess what the music was? You're right. I did it my way. And I thought, how fascinating that the, this most extraordinary four years, the Trump presidency, is bracketed by the song, I did it my way at the beginning of the four years, and the song I did it my way came back to close off the four years at the very end. And uh, I realize that not only did President Trump feel that it spoke to him, but so many guys I've spoken to over the years, and I bring up this topic, so many guys nod agreeably and they say, yes, That's my song. That's really the slogan of my life. And I understand. I do understand how seductive it is. And so that's why I thought that in spite of the fact that I am now going to be a critic, nowhere near the equal of the creator, I am nonetheless going to appraise the song I did it my way in the light of ancient Jewish wisdom in the light of those permanent principles by means of which we can all far more reliably shape our lives than we can by shaping our lives to a popular song whether it's all you need is love or whether it's like um uh whether it's like dr ezekiel emmanuel who obviously very much likes those lines imagine there's no countries Nothing to kill or die for. Everybody living in peace. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. No nation, national borders. And it's interesting that the left hates nationalism. They've turned the word nationalism into an obscenity. They've turned it into a derogatory term. Oh, he's a nationalist. And then they like putting the color white in front of it. Oh, he's a white nationalist. Okay. Um, they're wrong about that, and uh, and and um, nationalism is a positive thing, in exactly the same way as familyism on a smaller scale is a positive thing. If you don't care more for your parents than you do for other parents in the country, you're a monster. If you don't care more for your children than for other children in the country, you're not a lovely person. You're a monster. And it's really important to understand, you must love your family more than you love other families. Why is that? Because if you do not understand the hierarchy of good, then you end up doing no good for anybody at all. If you don't understand that you have a deeper financial obligation to the people you brought into the world than you do to all the other people in the world. Then you are going to be very harmful because, in trying to cure the good of all humanity, I want to solve world poverty, I want to end world hunger. You know what? It would be good if you could just make sure that your family never has to experience poverty or hunger. That would be a really good start because, in so doing, you would be contributing to improving the lot of everybody else as well. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's okay to now subject I Did It My Way by Paul Anker uh, to an analysis through the lens of the timeless truths of the Bible and ancient Jewish wisdom. The song begins, and I know some of you are waiting for me to sing it. Well, wait in vain, you loyal listeners, because in the famous words of saint clint eastwood a good man knows his limitations and so uh, the opening line of the song is and now the end is near okay Uh, nobody knows when the end is and we certainly should not be thinking to ourselves oh the end is near no matter what because as long as there is breath in the body, there is hope. As long as the business still has its doors open, there is still hope. And so the very phrase, and it, it starts off on, and it's it's, it's musically very evocative um, on, on that note, and now the end is near. But nobody should say that. Don't ever think the end is near, ever. So I face the final curtain. No, no, don't, don't think like that. And then he goes on, and I, I'm not going to do every word, but I'm going to jump ahead four or five lines. And he says, I've traveled each and every highway. All right, well, one of the reasons that I emphasize how important it is to make sure that you educate your children Sons in particular, and those of you who are regular listeners to the show will know that I've in the past addressed the monumental differences that exist between raising great boys and raising great girls, making sure that your daughters grow up to be successful young women and your sons grow up to be successful young men. There are very different challenges and uh, Many of the uh, the challenges are more severe when it comes to your boys. And that's why I, I've spoken in the past. One of the, the most popular podcasts I did a while back was a podcast in which I focused on the work you should be doing in raising your boy between the ages of 13 and 23. And uh, the, uh, the emphasis there is, is very much on not making mistakes, not going down wrong paths. Because going wrong down wrong paths, I know what people in California often say to them, well, it was a learning experience, as if there was no problem with it. Going down a wrong path consumes time and energy, and it leaves you scarred. You are doing your son a huge favor, if you make sure he does not go down any wrong paths. And so the person who's singing, I did it my way, he sings, I've traveled each and every highway. I don't want my son to travel each and every highway. There are many highways that have danger signs clearly marked on them. There are many signs on dangerous highways That's that show where accidents have occurred there. There are many highways in life that should not be traveled. And so I look at that line, I've traveled each and every highway, and I say, yeah, thank you, uh, but no thank you. Don't travel each and every highway. And then, of course, it goes, I did it my way. Now, this is where it gets very interesting because it sounds so appealing and it sounds so intrinsically American, doesn't it? I did it my way. Isn't that terrific, right? I'm beholden to nobody and I'm independent. I'm so different. This is part of American exceptionalism. It's so different from being a European or being anyone anywhere else. Because we don't march in lockstep, we are Americans we do it our way but here is the problem you see the book of judges and and take a look at this by the way you might want to make a note of it it's judges chapter 17 verse six and here's what it sounds like in the Hebrew ein melech ish And here's what it means. In those days, there was no king in Israel, meaning there was no system of effective government. And the verse finishes, each man did that which was Yashar. Uh, The best translation I'm going to give for Yashar is (sighs) right. And so it translates, there was no effective system of government in Israel, Judges 17.6. Each man did that which was right in his eyes. Do you hear? That's another way of saying each man did it his way, right? This guy in Judges could have sung, I did it my way. And obviously now really bad things are going to happen in Judges. And by the way, this gets emphasized again in the closing words of the book, chapter 21 of Judges, verse 25. Closing verse of the book, by Amimaheim, it's repeated, these uh, baleful and, uh, and uh, sinister-sounding words. In those days, there was no effective government in Israel. Each man did that which was right in his own eyes. You see, my friends, you cannot have a society if everyone does that which was right in his own eyes. I'm sure in your family, you have family meetings in which you discuss what family values are, what your family's values are. And you do that specifically because you are trying to inculcate a culture in your family where nobody in your family does that which was right in his own eyes. We all do right according to an objective reality. And just as you know that that really exists, I'm going to refer you to the book of Kings, and this is the first book of Kings, chapter 15, verse 5. For David had done that which was right in the eyes of God. Do you hear the difference? It's not each man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's terrible. King David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Or how about the second book of Kings, chapter 18, verse 3. And here we're talking about King Hezekiah. And it says, And Hezekiah did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. There's a big difference, isn't there? Doing that which is right in your eyes and doing that which is right in the eyes of God, what do you want your children to be doing? What do you want to be doing yourself? And so to glorify the song, I did it my way, is incredibly self-destructive. And you really want to make sure that neither you nor your son, nor your brothers, nor your friends, run their lives on the basis of, john lennon's imagine or the beatles all you need is love and paul Anker's i did it my way and um, then uh, it continues and by the way there's some very nice things in the song as well yes there were times i'm sure you know when i bit off more than i could chew yeah don't we all do that doesn't anybody with ambition attempt more that's okay Shoot for the stars. You're not going to make the stars, but you are going to get higher than you would have. And so, let me tell you, a lie that is all lie is not that dangerous because most of us can see through things that are all lies. The most perilous lies and the most dangerous and destructive untruths are those that wrap up in them an element of truth as well, because that becomes much more difficult to discern. And so when I hear the song, when I hear the words, when I bit off more than I could chew, I say, yeah, he's got me. That was me. I bit off more than I could chew more than once. and I crashed in flames. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and I spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall and I did it my way. That, my friends, is so very appealing. So whether it's popular songs or uh, statements by political leaders or uh, uh, slogans in marketing, whatever it is, it's always a good idea to weigh it up in terms of real truth. Uh, You know, in Shakespeare's play Hamlet, there's a famous section uh, in the first act where a a guy, let me just say his name first. His name is Polonius. He's a character in the play Hamlet. And uh, he makes a a long speech in which he's giving advice to his son, Laertes, who's going off. And uh, it's, it's one of these speeches that contains several phrases that Shakespeare inserted that have become enormously popular. So, for instance, polonius says neither a borrower nor a lender be and yeah of course there's an amount of truth in that uh he goes on and says for loan oft loses both itself and friend and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry um so you know what is he talking about the uh, of course there's an element of truth uh, it often does happen that uh, you lend somebody and uh It turns turns out to become something that damages the relationship and and hurts the friendship. So uh, there's, there's considerable truth when Shakespeare says, neither a borrower nor a lender be, because lending can sometimes lose friendships. And how about being a borrower? And he says, well, borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. And there are a number of explanations as to what Shakespeare means there, but it's taken at its very simple value. When he says borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry, he's, what he's really saying is borrowing uh, diminishes a man's virility in, in, in many ways, both uh, uh, abstractly and uh, metaphorically, as well as in as literally being a, a, a debtor to somebody is very, very uh, damaging. Uh, to a man it's not a good thing so much to be said in the value of, of shakespeare's point there however as a blanket rule never be a borrower or a lender that means somebody's probably never going to buy a house because you know overwhelmingly uh, we do borrow money for a mortgage on a house and um, and and it is usually under the right circumstances the right thing to do so again it's it's not Um, uh, possible to run one's life by slogans even if they come from Shakespeare let alone if they come from Paul Anker or Frank Sinatra Uh, Polonius continues uh, this above all and this is as he comes to the the finale of his speech this above all to thine own self be true and there again this is clearly something which is tremendously damaging and uh, and destructive it's not a good thing because being true to yourself is a very unreliable way of running your life. You, you have to have external uh, monitors. You've got to be able to say, am I right? And sometimes the external monitor is a trusted advisor, a person who's experienced more in life, a person who knows more. Other times, uh, it might well be your faith. You know, what would my faith say about this? Um, What does the Bible say? In other words, to say to thine own self be true is just very destructive because there's not a single one of us whose conscience is not elastic enough in order to justify whatever we do. And on some level, in some way or another, uh, I'm sorry to say it's something that each and every one of us does. We weigh up something and then we say, well, I'm, I'm sure I'm right about this. To thine own self be true. Well, I guess you're being true to yourself. And it's it's really appalling advice, and uh, and it gives us a little bit of a clue of what Shakespeare is doing in this entire speech of Polonius, because it's then when you begin to realize that this uh, Polonius is is a, not a good person, you know? And indeed, uh, he, he comes to a, a bad end. He gets killed in an accidental homicide because he was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And so Shakespeare is really, I think, making clear this very point that I've been talking about, which is just because something sounds pretty, just because a politician um, uh, mouths a platitude or a sentiment that that just sounds appealing, um, it, it doesn't mean anything at all that you can rely upon. And many leaders are guilty of this. Um, a statement just recently came out of the White House, and uh, I'll read it to you. Um, and again, uh, this is not necessarily unique to this president. Um, it's something that, that is fairly common. Here's, here's what came out of the White House, quote, To combat the climate crisis and power a clean energy revolution, President Biden will, colon, tap into the power of American workers, conserve and leverage our natural resources, create good-paying union jobs, deliver environmental justice. Now, uh, what I tend to do is I try and divide political statements into two categories. they are sometimes sentiments, and they are sometimes policies. And sentiments are completely meaningless. And we should avoid them. We should avoid them when we deal with our families. We should avoid them when dealing with with our business and professional lives, because think about this. I mean, this sounds pretty, and, and uh, tragically, I think a very large number of American citizens are going to enthusiastically nod their heads and say, yeah, that's right, this is the president we finally needed to combat the climate crisis and power a clean energy revolution. Well, who wouldn't want that, right? I mean, I didn't even know there's a climate crisis, but if there is one, let's combat it, and who wouldn't want a clean energy revolution? President Biden will tap into the power of American workers. Well, that sounds terrific. What does that actually mean? What's the policy that will flow from that sentiment? Conserve and leverage our natural resources. All right, well, one of our natural resources is oil. Another one is coal. Another one is nuclear power. How are these going to be conserved and leveraged? Uh, Those seem to be um, contradictory statements And at any rate, it's a sentiment. Pretty words meaning absolutely nothing. Create good-paying union jobs. Well, Susan Lappin would have rewritten that to read create well-paying union jobs. And then she would obviously have said, but what does that mean? Again, another sentiment. Deliver environmental justice. (coughs) Again, you know, I thought I know what justice means. It's, it's a word I recognize and understand. But what does environmental justice mean? It's a pretty phrase, but I'd like to know the policies that will flow from that. And that's another story altogether. So if there's a single lesson that summarizes what I've been trying to share with you, during the last 59 minutes, as I begin to bring the show in for a landing, it is that it's so powerful to begin to recognize that we ourselves are not always completely reliable. And this is because we are, in essence, divided. We are two entities. We are body and soul, if you like. Uh, we are horse and rider. The we are the intellect, and the rest of us. And it is so easy for people who have no access to this fundamental truth, which you can get from ancient Jewish wisdom, and you can get it from Scripture, and you can get it from your grandparents, maybe, or your parents, or your great grandparents or the old man who lives down the road. There are people who get this. And getting it early in life is much better than getting it late in life. Do you remember that very exciting podcast I did a while back in which I discussed the years from 13 to 23, those 10 years in the life of a young person? And I said that if you allow me to watch What a young boy or man does from the day he turns 13 to the day he turns 23, you give me insight into those 10 years, I will paint for you a pretty accurate picture of the rest of his life. And that's a startling thought because we all like to think that, you know what, you can always make a fresh start, make a mistake yesterday, start again today, but it's not the same. As making no mistakes or making fewer mistakes. And today in the world, whether it's in North America or in any of the other countries um, in which you, so many of you are listening, and I've received so many terrific um, notes and comments lately. Um, Guam, got somebody listening in Guam. And uh, we, uh, here's an interesting one. I just met somebody who's been a long-time listener of this show, and to my enormous pleasure, he informed me where he was listening from, and he said he was pretty sure that I do not yet have a pin in my map to represent the location he listens from. Well, he was right, but he's not right anymore because now there is a pin. He's listening from Prince Wales Island. Now, if you don't know where Prince Wales Island is, you should be ashamed of yourself. It lies off the coast of Alaska. And if you go to Ketchikan, Alaska, a a fascinating town, and you travel about 100 miles or so west out towards the setting sun, you'll come to Prince Wales Island. And um, there, my new friend, well, uh, my old friend in a way, Um, is listening, and uh, I appreciated meeting him very much indeed. And so, um, it doesn't matter, wherever you're listening, wherever you're living, one of the, the problems today is that people, particularly younger people, are frighteningly susceptible to ideas that are not rooted in reality and facts that are without foundation. And so, The the trouble is that that means that one tends to do it your way. You tend to think that I'm, I'm right. This is my view and I'm right. I'm entitled to my view. Yes, of course you are, but that doesn't mean you're right. And it's an enormous advantage in life to understand that each of us is made up of these two parts. And there's one part of us that really wants to believe what we want to believe. And the other part rides herd on that. Uh, The other part brandishes the reins and says, whoa, hold it there. How do you know that that is true? What makes you so sure that your conviction on this is well-founded? And so, developing your own north star, developing your own compass, finding something that allows you to test your suppositions against reality and truth, is incredibly valuable. This is a role, of course, that we are all intended to play for our own children. We're expected to play it for anybody we mentor. But it's not always easy today, particularly for people raised on popular entertainment, uh, to recognize the value of that. And so that is what I've tried my best uh, to bring across to you during this show that um, I think of as really one of the truly uh, important ones in in my mind. So uh, I hope that you've enjoyed it and that I I also hope that you will be lavish in your spreading of it because I think that can only do good. Uh, The more particularly young people who at least become open to the idea of, wait a second, maybe the way I do it, my way, hey, maybe that isn't the best way. And uh, particularly people who are still young enough to lay out the course of the important years of 13 to 23. These are really important years, so important, by the way, that I would never recommend wasting any of them at a college or a university. Uh, you know, you're you're an 18-year-old, you've finished high school, you're now thinking, or you're about to finish high school, you're thinking of going to college or university. Here is what, if you were to ask me, here's what I would tell you to seriously consider. What I'd seriously recommend is that you find a job. That's right. You're 18 years old, you've finished high school, you've done well, maybe you haven't done well, doesn't matter it's all irrelevant because now you get a job and get the best job you can not necessarily the job you'd enjoy doing yes i know that you'd like to become a park ranger in yellowstone i get that but don't do that for now it's going to take you're going to waste several years even trying to get that position just get a job that pays you more than anything else that you could get a job doing because that's one of the ways of measuring how much that job what you would be doing helps god's other children helps other human beings helps your fellow citizens and just do that for a few years and then if you still want to go to university wonderful go but by now you've actually learned a little bit about how money works you've learned about how the world really works And you will tackle college or university in a totally different way. Hey, you may even be married between 18 and 23. Get married. As long as you know what you're doing, as long as you don't think all you need is love. No, that's not true. But if you get all this right, my goodness, what value you can give to your life and to yourself and to the future people who are going to be parts of your family so uh, that is what uh, i would like to encourage you to is to spread and uh, and encourage others to listen to this show because at the very least it will raise crucial questions that can have a dramatically positive impact on the direction of people's lives and um, help people direct people to my website And what I'm encouraging you particularly to take a look at, um, if you really want material that'll speak not just to your brain, but also to your heart, if you want material that'll speak not just to your body, but also to your soul, look at scrolling through scripture. And I think it's something that uh, you'll enjoy reading about and you'll enjoy discovering about. You can go to wehappywarriors.com. We Happy Warriors, W E H A P P Y, We Happy And uh, join our little band of valiant but happy warriors. And uh, there you can explore scrolling through scripture. Uh, I'd love to hear from you after you've done that. I think it's something you're, you're really going to find incredibly moving and uh, incredibly impactful in making decisions as to how you are going to maximize well the rest of your life really but uh, meanwhile this today is one show and it's till next week when i bring you god willing another show of the rabbi daniel lapin show series i want to wish you a really great week as you focus on your five Fs, as you focus on developing your relationships with your faith, with your family, with your finances, with your friends, and with your own personal physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.